I'm glad to be here. Uh, like Brian was saying, this is a new thing for all of us. You know, I'm not, I've been up here before. You guys may have heard me. I, I gave a little Devo. I gave my testimony and uh, things like that. And I know Josh was excited about the New Testament. Like, he really didn't want to give up this study. And I can understand why. I mean, the New Testament is powerful. Like, you see all the red letters in the New Testament. That's Jesus' words. Like, when you get to teach out of the, the words of Jesus, it's, it's amazing. I mean, the whole Bible is amazing. It all speaks of Jesus. But to actually be able to get into the, uh, to the red letter section, as I like to call it, like, it, it's powerful, man. And the, the Word of God is powerful, period. I mean, that's the title of my message tonight, is the Word of God is powerful, and it truly is. I mean, the Word of God never changes. It, it's, it stays the same. It'll always be the same. We can always rely on the Word of God, and the Word of God is true. I mean, it's, it's cool that we can come together as a family and just and simply study the Word of God. Brian talked about how this Bible study started from just, you know, a couple of guys meeting together, praying, and just studying the Word. And it grew, and it grew, and the Lord added to the numbers, and, and it grew. And here we are today, studying the Bible. And the whole concept of this is, is just to study a chapter of the Bible a day. So I hope you guys are, are following along and are, are reading your chapter a day. I mean, we need to be fed spiritually. As much as we eat physically, we need to be feeding ourselves spiritually. And we need to be chewing on the Word of God, meditating on it day and night. So I would encourage you guys, if you're not reading every day, just pick up, get in where you're fitting. Start now. Start today. Today is chapter 19, Matthew chapter 19. So start today, tomorrow will be Matthew chapter 20, and then seven days from now we'll, we'll get back in it, and uh, Fred will be up here teaching from Matthew chapter 26. So being the Word of God is powerful, man. It's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, we might as well just, let's just let's start in, uh, in Matthew chapter 19. I'll read a bit, and then we'll pray. Matthew chapter 19, verse 1, says, Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. Let's pray. Lord, I just I thank you for this opportunity, God. I recognize that, that you are a great God. Lord, and I pray that I would represent you rightly up here, that I would rightly divide the, your word, Lord, that it would be truth, and that people would receive it as truth. Father, I pray that you would just speak to the people, that you would uh, allow my words to be your words, and that the message would be clear, and that you would speak to each and every one of us, and that we would appreciate your word, and we would recognize it for, for what it is, and who it represents, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we thank you for your word. I pray that you would just be with us now in this time, and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So a reason why I read that passage is I just I thought it was fitting, because it says that it came to pass when Jesus finished these sayings, that he came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And and it says that great multitudes followed him. And we're a multitude in a sense. I mean, we have heard the words of Jesus. That's why we're here, we're to hear the words of Jesus. They went beyond the region of Jordan to, to hear the word of Jesus. We went on the, beyond the region of Van Buren to hear the word of Jesus. It said that, that, um, that they went to the, the region beyond, or the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And from where he was leaving from, he left Galilee. He left his hometown. So the people that were following him were probably Galileans. They're probably they're familiar with Galilee. So to go beyond the, the, beyond the Jordan, or next to the Jordan, as some translations say, it was something new to them. The things that they were seeing, the things that they were experiencing, it wasn't things that they were familiar with. But it says that, that he, when they came to him, or when they followed him, that, or that great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. He healed them there in the place where, where they were unfamiliar with, where things didn't seem quite the norm to them. I mean, they were Galileans. They're, they're over here in this, this region that they're not familiar with. 
But it says that, that Jesus healed them. He healed them. And I mean, and uh, the word Judea for the region that, that uh, they were at, I looked it up in like the, New, the Nelson's Bible Dictionary. And it, it comes from the adjective uh, Jewish, which is a term that was used of, of Babylonian captives who returned to the promised land. And the reason why I bring that up is because so many times in our lives, even before Christ, and even sometimes in our, in our new walks with Christ, that we feel like we may be captives. I mean, the Jewish, the Jewish people that this is describing, or the word Judea describes, they were captives in Babylon. Uh, in Babylon. And they, they were captive to a lifestyle that wasn't something that they were accustomed to, that they weren't supposed to be living. And we weren't supposed to be living a life of sin. We were we called to a, a higher standard. We were called to, to be sons and daughters of God. And for those of us who made that decision to follow God, we don't have to be captive to sin. I mean, even if we're in a, an area that's unfamiliar to us, this Christian life is unfamiliar to us. We may not be understanding everything that, that we, we are doing or the things that we're a part of, but we can always trust in the word of God to lead us, to guide us, and to direct us because the word of God is powerful. The word of God is true. I mean, they came to Jesus, and Jesus healed them. He healed them from a lifestyle that, that, was, that was afflicting them. They were sick. They needed healing, and Jesus provided that healing. And Jesus, he provided that same healing to, to people today. It's not just something that we read of in this book that happened a long time ago. Jesus still heals today. How do I know? He healed me. I was, I was lost. I was stuck in sin. I was stuck in a lifestyle that all I knew was sin. Like, I thought I knew good in and of myself. I thought I knew good morals, but I didn't. It wasn't until I cried out to the Lord to where he healed me. He delivered me. If he hadn't healed me, I'd probably be in a, a padded room somewhere just on my own. But the Lord, he came and he healed me. And the Lord can do the same for you. And I pray that he has done that for you and that he will continue to provide healing for you. Whatever area of your life that you may be struggling in, maybe it's something that you just feel that you can't control. It's something that is just beyond your understanding. Give it to the Lord. Come to Jesus. Let him heal you. He will heal you. We know that the word of God is powerful and that Jesus can do all things. God is all powerful. He can do all things. And if you need healing call out to him. Cry out to him. Don't stop until he answers you, until he heals you. Continue to knock. Continue to ask. Continue to seek. That's what the word tells us. To be obedient to what the word calls us to do and, and call out to Jesus. He will heal you. Let's continue. Starting in, uh, or continuing back in, into verse 3, it says that the Pharisees came to him, testing him, and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce, to divorce his wife for just any reason? And let's stop there. So we see these guys, the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they come to Jesus testing him. So who are the Pharisees? Most of, most of us are pretty familiar with who the Pharisees are. I mean, they're the legalistic ones. They're the, the religious people of the day. And the Pharisees, when I was looking it up, like the Pharisees, a lot of people would think would be, you know, ordained by God, that they're like the high priests of the day. But it's not actually true. Some of them were priests, but not all of them. Some of them were just, were just lay people, just regular human beings like me and you. But they were recognized because they, they studied the word of God, and they thought they knew the word of God, and, and so much so that they would uh, apply these laws that the Lord had put in, in the, the law of Moses in the Old Testament, and they would observe these laws. And they were known for being really, really careful for obeying each and every one of these laws. And so much so that the people of the day, that they, they looked up to the Pharisees, more so than the priests, because the priesthood at that time was corrupt. They didn't trust the priests. They, they, they actually relied more on the interpretations of the Pharisees than they did the, the interpretations of, of the priests. But so we see here that these Pharisees, who think they know the, Lord, the word of God, 
They come up to Jesus and they, they try to test him. It's funny, like they come up to him like they think he's gonna, they're going to catch him slipping. They're going to ask him a question from the word of God to the man who is the word of God and catch him up in it. In, it's just foolish. But that just shows you the mindset of the Pharisees. They were prideful in themselves. They thought they knew the word of God. And sometimes we can be like that, like, well, you know, I've been a Christian a long time. I study the word of God. You know, I can I can apply it to every situation I know. And we get prideful. But the Bible says, take heed, lest you fall. And God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. We need to humble ourselves. The Pharisees didn't. And we see what happens to them in this story. Let's go on to verse four. It says that. And when he answered him or when they and when he answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them in the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And we'll stop there. See, at this time, the Pharisees, they, they come up to Jesus and they ask him this question regarding divorce. Okay, is it lawful for a man to, to divorce his wife for just any reason? And at this time, there was, there was two schools of rabbinic thought at the time. There was two rabbis who had a, a, a prominent thought and it was accepted by the people of the day. One school of thought said that it was okay that uh, if a man would divorce his wife for only sexual immorality, that was the only, only, uh, only allowance for him to divorce his wife was for sexual immorality. And there was another school of thought that said that a man could divorce his wife for any form of uncleanness, and they would interpret that to mean anything that caused the husband to not find favor in, the, to find favor in his wife. And that could be from from her burning the food or, or for her just not looking as good as he thought she was. Like, it could be anything. And, and this was the, the, the question that they posed to Jesus was, okay, so who do you agree with? Who are you siding with here? What school of thought do you agree with? But I love Jesus, man, because he always goes back to the scriptures. When he was tempted, he went back to the scriptures. When he's tested, he goes back to the scriptures. He always goes back to the source. And it's powerful for us, too. The word of God is powerful in our lives. If we hold to the word of God, if we know the word of God, we can be able to discern what, when we're being tested or when the enemy's trying to sneak a lie or put a lie in front of us because we know the word of God. The word of God is truth. It illuminates off all lies. And Jesus, he did that here. He went to the scriptures. He went to the source. He said that, have you not read that in the beginning, the, in the beginning, they were made male and female, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and, and mother and, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is an account from Genesis, that they, a man was to, cleave, or to leave his family, his mother and his father, and to cleave to his wife, and they were to become one. Jesus goes back to the first instance of when, when, it was that, uh, when, the, when, men, when marriage was insti- instituted. So the, the Pharisees, they're talking about these things that are happening at the, at the, at the present day and the things that are going on. But Jesus takes it back to the scriptures. He goes back to the word of God to the very beginning of how it was designed. How was it designed for a man and a woman to, to be joined together and that they would be together forever? The only thing that would separate them would be death. That was the way it was supposed to be. But then sin entered in and all this corruption entered in and then men's hearts were hardened. Men became sinful. They had a sinful mindset. They were prone to sin. would always sin. So because of that, there was a, a, an, allo- uh, an allowance that if divorce was to take place, that it would take place for a certain reason. It said that um, in verse 7, if we continue on, in verse 7, it says, 
that they said to him, why then did Moses give the command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? So they're questioning him. They, like the, the Pharisees, man, it's funny to me because like, we look at the story, we see them, and we know how the story is going to end. We know that Jesus is always going to be victorious. But in and of themselves, they, they can't see beyond their own pride. They can't be see beyond their own knowledge. They think that they have all this wisdom. Like that they're gonna, they, they asked him this question, and he answered them with a, a smarter answer and questioned them. So then they come back with another question. They say, so then if, if that's true, if a man was supposed to be with his wife, then why did Moses allow for a certificate of divorce to be written? And Jesus gives them an answer. In verse 8, he says to them, Moses, because the hardness of your hearts permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. He said, and his disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is, very, it is better for him not to marry. So Jesus here, he gives them the reason why Moses allowed for a certificate of divorce. And I kind of touched on that a little bit. Because of the hardness of their hearts. But see, the Pharisees, again, they thought they knew the word of God. They were prideful in of themselves, but they set themselves up for a fall. Because when they posed the question to Jesus, they said, why then did Moses command? Why did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce? I mean, I've read Deuteronomy 24, which was the, the chapter that they're referring to when Moses is laying out the situation of, of divorce and when it should happen or how it should happen. And it never says that Moses commanded anything. Moses never said, thus saith the Lord. He never said that the Lord told you to get a, a divorce or uh, uh, was, was commanding it. So they were distorting the word of God. They were not rightly dividing the word of truth, which reminds me of a song that's familiar to all of us. We won't sing it tonight. It's okay. We will. I know Josh will be disappointed, but we'll stay away from it tonight. But 2 Timothy 2.15, read it, love it, learn it. It's great. 2 Timothy 2.15, yes, yes. Um, but they weren't rightly dividing the word of truth. The Pharisees, they're trying to, like, again, they said they're trying to, they're trying to, uh, set up the, the word of God. They're trying to set up Jesus and, and test him by the one who, who wrote the word, who, was, who is the word in flesh. It doesn't make any sense, but yet they, they still do it because they don't believe. There are, they don't understand and they don't see that Jesus is the word of God. But anyways, they, Jesus gets back and says in verse 9, he said to them, Moses, because the heart of, hardness of your heart permitted, he permitted, he allowed it. It wasn't a command, he allowed it. I mean, the only way that Moses allowed for a divorce was for uh, sexual immorality, and Jesus says that. He says in verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So Jesus here gives the, the, the allowance for, for divorce. When is divorce allowed? If there is sexual immorality. And then Paul, later on in 1 Corinthians, talks about even if, if, a, if a believing spouse is abandoned by their unbelieving spouse, that, then that is an allowance for divorce also. But sexual immorality and an abandonment are allowances for divorce. But in the beginning, it was not to be this way. Marriage should not be looked at as a, with, a, with, a scape, with a scape door. We're not, should we, we shouldn't get into marriage or even having the mindset of a, or a possibility of divorce. That shouldn't even be in, in our minds, especially as believers. Like, I mean, I can understand for the world, but as believers, 
We should get back to the original statement of, of the Lord. He said, a man and a woman shall be joined together and be one flesh. If you become one flesh with somebody, it's kind of hard to separate. I mean, you can glue up two pieces of paper together, and if you separate them, they're not going to separate at the same spot. It was not, we're never supposed to be separated as husband and wife. We're supposed to be together. It's a, it's a picture of the church. It's a picture of the church and God's love for the church. So to divorce your wife is messing up the picture that God had designed for, for his church and for the world to see. God doesn't divorce his bride. How many times have we committed immorality? How many times have we went against the Lord? How many times have we been unpleasing to God? How many times should he have plenty of cause to divorce us? You know, adultery can be explained simply as, as a man having, or a man or a woman going outside of marriage and having sexual, uh, sexual, immoral, <laughs> sexual immoral relationships. But also, there's spiritual adultery. Just like in the, the commandments. Commandment number three is what? Commandment number three, you should not take the Lord's name in vain. You should not take the Lord's name in vain. That's, that's more than just cursing. It's more than just, you know, saying, you know, GD. It's more than that. If you take the Lord's name, if you accept the Lord into your life and you call yourself a Christian, you've accepted the Lord's name. You should not take his name in vain. You should not take his name and then do opposite of what his word tells us to do. You should not live a life that is contrary to what his name represents, of who he is. He is Messiah. He is our Lord and our Savior. He is God. He is all-powerful. His word is powerful. You shall not take his name in vain. And if you do, you committed adultery. If a, if a wife takes the name of her husband, his, her, her name now becomes his name. And if she goes and has a relationship with someone else, then she has taken his name in vain. And that's the same thing we do. If we take the name of Jesus Christ and we sin against him, we've taken his name in vain. If we live a lifestyle that, is, is, is dem- that demonstrates sin and, and unrepented acts of, of just wickedness, you have taken the Lord's name in vain and you need to repent. You need to get back to, to what it is to be a Christian, to what it is to be a believer and follow Jesus, obey his word. Find out what the word says because the word is powerful. It will change your life. It has changed my life. So the Lord has not divorced us as many times as we've committed adultery. He's, he's shown us grace. As many times as we've committed spiritual adultery, he's given us grace and allowed us to come back to him. So I've asked the brothers one time, I was like, if you guys got married and your wife happened to cheat on you, would you, would you divorce her? Or would you, would you try to reconcile? And it's, it's a question, I mean, just you should ask yourself. And I asked myself. And I really had to come to the point of recognizing the truth of what marriage is and what it represents. God has not divorced me. As wicked as I am, as many things as I've done wrong. So for me to divorce my wife because she was unfaithful once, that's not something that I would do. And I'm not saying that, you know, there aren't situations to where, you know, reconciliation is, is not happening. It's not impossible. Or that it is impossible. But it's for me as an individual I recognize that I've been forgiven much. And he who forgive, who's been forgiven much forgives much. And if we've been forgiven much, we can forgive. So while divorce may be an allowance and the Lord may allow it, as Christians, it shouldn't be a possibility for us. It shouldn't even be in our minds. We shouldn't even think, we shouldn't even be able to say that word. Jesus, he gives us clear direction in his word as to how we're to live. His word is powerful. 
And we can always go to it and know that it will speak truth into our lives. But they say here that in, in verse 9, Jesus says that if, if someone commits uh, sexual immorality and marries another, that they commit adultery. And if you know anything about the adultery in the Old Testament times, if you committed adultery, you're going to get stoned. Like, that was the penalty for adultery. You were going to die. You were going to get stoned. I mean, you remember the story of Jesus and, and the Pharisees, and they, they brought this woman who was caught in, in the very act, and they lay her at his feet. And Jesus says, well, he's without sin. Cast the first stone. They were ready to stone her. And if you commit adultery, if, you've, if you divorce someone except for sexual immorality and you marry another, you've committed adultery, and that's deserving of death. So Jesus is saying something that's radical to the people at the time. It may not seem that radical to us, but at the time, there's multitudes around. Remember, they followed him to the region outside the Jordan. There's a multitude of people. And he's saying, if you, can, if you divorce your wife without the cause of sexual immorality, then you committed adultery. You should be stoned. It's, that's, that's, that's radical. You should be dead. You should be getting stoned right now at this very moment. But, but it, it, wasn't, it wasn't happening at that moment, obviously. But um, if you just... I can just picture the whole scene. You see a bunch of people standing around Jesus. He's, he's proclaiming the truth. He's going back and forth with these, these Pharisees. And there's a multitude of people. Maybe there's someone in the crowd that's like, oh, man, I just, oh, I had the thought of divorce. Like, I was thinking about divorcing my wife because this morning, man, she did not make my eggs right. And it was a little too burnt. My toast, you know, wasn't like the way I like it. And she really ain't looking like she used to. And Jesus says, no, apart from sexual morality, you're not to divorce her. So, I mean, the first thing probably popped in his head was like, man, we have to get you a Rachel Ray cookbook, some Mac makeup. We got to work this out because I ain't getting stoned. Like, it was serious. Like, stoning is is not something to play around with. So, like, he was, I don't know. I just, that's the picture I play in my mind. So, that's just the situation of how it would be and how they would would receive it, how they would think about it. Like, it's it's serious. It's not something to play around with. Divorce is not something to play around with. And I think that's why the disciples in verse 10, why they say what they say. In verse 10, he says, His disciples said to him, If such is the case with a man and his wife, it is, better for him not, it, is, it is better for him not to marry. It's like, well, okay, if I can't divorce her because, you know, she don't make dinner right and she don't look good, then it's better for me not even to marry there, right? And Jesus corrects him again. You just see how so, so often we think we're right in our own eyes and in, in our own minds. You know, the disciples, they hang around Jesus, you know, 24-7, yet they still have this wrong idea of what it's supposed to be. And so many times we think that we know the word. We think we know the things of God. But we need to make sure that our, our thoughts are in line with what the Bible says, the word of God. Because the word of God, again, is powerful. But Jesus goes back at them, and he says in verse 11, and he says to them, All cannot accept the same, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. So Jesus, he goes here and he starts talking about this. So they're saying, well, if, it's, if, a, if divorce is so serious, then I don't even want to cross that line. How about I just stay away from it and I'll just stay single? It's better for a man just to stay single, right? And Jesus says, well, you know, all cannot accept this thing. He's prefacing a statement. He's saying that this, this isn't for everybody. Not everybody can accept this. But only those to who it has been given. And if you've been given something, what do we call that? We call it a gift. So this is something that has been given to people, to some people, a gift, the gift of singleness. Jesus says in verse 12, for there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. There are, there are people that are born that are unable to marry. They're born that way from the mother's womb. 
there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men. And the word eunuch, if, if you don't have the little, little center column in your Bible like mine does, the eunuch it just, it's a, it can be translated as a castrated man or a man that's unable to marry. And uh, they said that there's eunuchs that are made eunuchs by men. There were, there were people in, in the eastern, eastern uh, regions and the eastern times or eastern areas that where they, uh, there were eunuchs that were made eunuchs by men because of the work that they did. There was like queens and princesses that needed to be tended to, and they didn't want any kind of foul play to happen, so they made sure of it by making men eunuchs. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. There are men that are made eunuchs by men. And then he says that there are eunuchs who are made, who are eunuchs, wait, there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. But what does that mean? There's people who have allowed themselves to, or people that have the gift of singleness who are unable to marry or who are not marrying for the sake of the kingdom. And what does that look like? I mean, we see the example of Paul, Paul the Apostle. He was considered a eunuch, so to speak. For why? Why? For the kingdom's sake. So he can be busy about the Lord's work and busy about preaching the gospel, that he wouldn't be concerned with the things of this world and how he may please his wife. There are those who have that gift. I mean, maybe you may not have that, that, that gift of singleness. And the quick way to find that, well, do you have the desire to, to marry, to, be, to have a wife or to have a husband? then it's probably not your gift. All cannot accept this saying. This isn't for everybody, but it is for some. And I mean, I think this, this, well, this verse did speak to me in a sense, because while I may not have the, the gift of singleness, I mean, Lord willing, I, I plan, <laughs> I desire, I mean, I desire to be married. I desire to have a wife, and I, hope, I mean, I'm sure most of us in here do. And the gift of singleness may not be for me for the, that long period of my entire life as Paul but maybe for this time that the Lord has me at this stage where the Lord has me at my life, I believe that the Lord spoke that to me, that for me at this time, that he has me single for a reason so I can be busy about the Lord's work. I mean, Paul talks about this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you guys want to turn there real quick, we'll, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, Romans, and then 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And Paul, exhorting the, the church at Corinth, he, uh, he, he tells him in verse 7, verse 7 of chapter 7, For I wish that all men were even as myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them to remain even as I am. So Paul exhorts them. And he says, you know, for the unmarried and for the widows, it is better for you to remain as I am. I mean, some of you are like, well, you know, that's cool, but you should continue on. Look at verse 9. Okay, let's look at verse 9 then. Verse 9 says, but if, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. I'm like, see, that's what I'm talking about. People are like, yeah. A lot of people use this verse like, yeah, see, I'm, I'm burning with passion, so I should get married. I got to get married right now. It's like, no, you need a drink of water. That's what you need. You need to calm yourself down. <laughs> I mean, it's only 25 cents. Somebody buy somebody a cup of water. But anyways, it's, Paul, he tells the people this. He tells the people at Corinth for a reason. Why? Well, let's, let's look over in verse 26 in chapter 7. It says, I suppose, therefore, that, they, that it is good because of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Verse 27, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. 
And are you loose from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Let's go into verse 32. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world and how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord and that she may, that she may be both holy in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world and how she may please her husband. And I say this not to, and I say this for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, that you may serve the Lord without distraction. And I, I believe that that's speaking to a lot of people that are single at this very point. I mean, you may feel the, that you're burning with lust. You may feel that you've you got to get married. But Paul here tells the church, he says, you know, it is better to remain as you are. Serve the Lord in the, the area of, of life that you're at right now. The Bible says, you know, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to us, including a wife, including the, the, the house and the car and the kids, if the Lord wills it for you. But seek first the kingdom of God. Remain as you are. And, I mean, I'm not saying this legalistically to put a leash on you, saying you have to. Maybe the Lord really is calling you to get married. And if so, I pray that you would prayerfully continue in that direction. But if the Lord has you where you're at for a season of singleness, then serve the Lord at your, at your best capacity. You have no distractions. You don't have to worry about cooking dinner for the family or, or making sure that the lights are still on. Serve the Lord as you can right now as, you're, as we're single. Let's get back to uh, Matthew chapter 19. He says that in the end of verse 12, he says, um, He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. I mean, this is not for everyone, like I said. I mean, if the Lord truly is calling you to, to get married, if you're on that track, then, I mean, it should work out, and the Lord will, will bless it. But I believe, for myself at least, when the Lord, I believe, brings me my wife, it'll, it won't be a distraction to me. I'll be able to continue in the ministry, continue to serve the Lord, and he'll bring her light alongside of me. And I pray that he would do the same for each and every one of you, that it wouldn't be something that you have to strive after or seek after, but that the Lord would just bring it, and it will work out perfectly. We serve a God of order. He'll work it out orderly. I mean, the word of God is true. We believe the word of God to be true, right? And it's powerful. So if he has called you to be single at this time, then be single and serve the Lord. So let's continue on. It says in verse 13, in verse 13, he says, Then little, chil- then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the little ch- children come to me and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. So we see here that you know, in verse 15 it says, and, and he laid his hands on them, and he, and he laid his hands on them, and they departed from there. So, so here we go. We talk about the situa- situation of divorce. And I mean, forgive me if I'm wrong. If there's anyone here that has had a divorce, I mean, I'm not saying this to condemn you. you. If you've had a divorce, then, I mean, and you've repented, or if you've been born again since then, and you've repented, I mean, all our sins are forgiven by Jesus Christ, and you can continue on in life. You're not to be condemned. Continue to move forward. You can't do nothing about the past. Or if you're single and you recognize that maybe you stepped out outside of your bounds and you're striving after a relationship, you're seeking to be bound to a wife, then, I mean, repent. Turn back to God. I mean, he's given us grace. I mean, he hasn't divorced us. He's allowed us to continue to serve him. So they're talking about marriage, talking about family, and then all of a sudden, there's the little children that were brought up to him. And they're brought up to him, why? So that, they will, that, that he can put his hands on them and that he would pray. 
But then the disciples rebuked the people that brought the children. Why? Well, maybe they thought that, you know, this, this work was below their Lord. They recognize Jesus for who he is. They recognize that, you know, he is God in the flesh. And, you know, they don't need no little snotty-nosed kids running up on him, drooling on him, throwing up on him, stuff like that. So, like, nah, keep him away. Keep him away. But Jesus says, nah, nah, let him come to me. I mean, remember yesterday in chapter 18, verse 3, he said, of such is the kingdom of God. I mean, you have to be like a child to enter into the kingdom of heaven. He says, let the, children, let the children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Such is the kingdom. When I think of a child or a little child, I think of, you know, kids are like so imagined. they got the greatest imagination. They're willing to believe like, with like no other. And they're, they're dependent. They're completely dependent because a child is dependent upon their father and their mother to provide for them. They can't go out and get a job and, you know, pay the bills. They're dependent. And they're also innocent. When you think of a little kid, like they're little innocent kids. I mean, they may be bad at times, but they're still innocent. They're, they're innocent little kids. I mean, and Jesus said, and they asked Jesus to lay his hands on them, to bless them. And when we see that even in churches today, I mean, most of us go to harvest. And on Sunday morning, you'll see that they bring children up on the stage and, you know, they lay the hand, uh, they have the pastor hold them, the baby laying hands on them and, and praying for the child, committing them to the Lord. So, I mean, if you ever wondered if that's biblical, like, why do they always bring these kids on stage? Man, we've got to pray for another kid again. It's biblical. <laughs> Jesus, he, he, he lays hands on the kids and he prays for them, committing, that, committing them unto the Lord. I mean, it was a common custom among the Jews to lay their hands on the heads of, of, of the ones that they were blessing. So Jesus was laying his hands on them and praying and laying a, a blessing on them. And this would have been done by way of, a, of dedication or consecration just to, to set apart this person to God being considered the sacred property or, or the possession of God. And Jesus says, of such is the kingdom of heaven, of children who, who are, are, are little children, who are believing, who are dependent, and who are innocent. And in, in, like I said, in Matthew chapter 18, verse 3, he said that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to be this way as a, as a child. You have to be believing. You have to be, be dependent. You have to be innocent. Believing in what? Believing that Jesus is the Lord and Savior that he claims to be. That he, is, he is, that he is God in the flesh, that he died on a cross, that he, he rose three days later from the grave for the forgiveness of our sins so that we can have a relationship with God. Because we're separated from God by our own sin. But Jesus, he died on the cross so that we can have fellowship with God because we are separated from God. We have no hope aside from Jesus. So you need to come to Jesus as a child, believing that. Also, depending to be dependent. Be dependent on the Lord. Depend on him in every situation. Depend on him completely. I mean, I'm dependent on him right now. That he'll let me finish. I'm dependent. We all need to be dependent on the Lord in every situation and circumstance in our life, knowing that God has the power to come through in our lives. If you need healing, he can, he can heal you. If you, need, if you need just comfort, he can comfort you. God is powerful. His word is powerful. We need to trust him and, and be dependent. Be dependent on him. Be dependent on his word. Also, we need to have innocence. We can't have innocence apart from God. We are wretched men. We all recognize that we sinned and we've fallen short. We are wretched. But by the blood of Jesus, by the regeneration that he's allowed to happen in our lives, we can be seen innocent in the eyes of God. We can be seen as innocent. And then we can have the, we are given the power of the Holy Spirit to remain that way, that we can be free from sin, that we can have the power to overcome sin, that we can have the power to resist sin, that we can resist temptation. We need to come to Jesus as a child. I mean, Jesus laid his hands on these kids, and, and then he departed from here. And let's continue on into, into verses uh, 16. In verse 16, it says, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may 
have eternal life. So he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. But if you want to enter, the, but if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your mother and father, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if, if you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Let's stop there. And a lot of you may recognize this story as the story of the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus, and he says, the first thing he says is, it's good teacher. Good teacher. What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And the first thing that Jesus says is, why do you call me good? And I, like, in my mind, I picture Jesus just paused just like that. Like, why do you call me good? There is none good except for one, and that's God. Leave it an opportunity for him. Because what do you need to do to inherit eternal life? You need to confess that Jesus is Lord and believe it in your heart. That Jesus has, had died and that he rose from the grave three days later. And you will be saved. The Bible says it in Romans 10, 9. But Jesus asked him, he says, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, God. So he's given the opportunity. You call me good. So are you, are you recognizing that I'm God? Are you saying that I'm God? That I'm God in the flesh? But then it completely goes over the man's head and Jesus continues on. He says, why do you call me good? There's no one good except for God. But if you want to inherit life, keep the commandments. So he tells the man, if you want to enter eternal life, you got to keep the commandments. Basically, you have to be perfect. You have to keep every single commandment in order to enter eternal life. Why? Because God is pure. God is holy. There can be no transgression in his presence. There can be no sin. There can be no filth. You have to be pure to inherit, inherit eternal life. So he says, keep the commandments. Be perfect. I mean, in the Old Testament, it's, uh, scholars say that there was 613 laws. 613 laws. I mean, a lot of us can barely remember the Ten Commandments, let alone 613. And I pray that you would commit the Ten Commandments to your memory because it's, it's, it's powerful. It's the Word of God. It is powerful. But there were 613 commandments that were said to be kept. So Jesus says, if you want to inherit eternal life, keep the commandments. In verse 18, he says, well, which ones? It's 613. Which ones do I got to keep? And, and Jesus says, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus gives them a list of commandments here. And if you notice, if you have memorized the Ten Commandments, these aren't all the Ten Commandments right here. What these are are commandments that relate to a man's relationship to other men. So Jesus says all these things. He says, keep these commandments. He lists off these, these, these few commandments here. And the man, he's like, pretty proud of him. So he's like, okay, well, you know, I've kept all these things from my youth. What still do I lack? Now, does any of us here really believe this man that says that he kept all the commandments? You know, I've kept all these things from my youth, from a child. I mean, we can see it clearly. I mean, if, if, our, own, if our own minds doesn't tell us that, that he hasn't kept this, it says he, he himself says that he hasn't, in a sense, because he says, what do I still lack? If he had kept the commandments, if he kept every, every single one, then he should be complete. He should be pure. He should be holy. He should be satisfied. But he says, what things still do I lack? He's lacking something. 
And 21, in verse 21, Jesus says to him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. So what's Jesus' response? Okay, you're still lacking something. So you recognize that you have a need, and Jesus gets to the core of his need. He says, go and sell all your possessions. Why do you tell him to go sell his possessions? Is that something that we all have to do? We have to go sell everything we own in order to, to be perfect? No, Jesus is talking to this man as an individual. He recognizes where he's at. He sees where his heart's at. You know, the Bible says where your heart is at, your tre- or where your treasure is, there is your heart lies also. He recognizes where this man's treasure is. It's in his possessions. That's where his heart's at. His heart is at in his possessions. So Jesus gets to the heart of that. He says, get rid of that. Get rid of that. Get rid of your possessions and come and follow me. And he says, he says uh, to come and follow me. So the man, in verse 22, it says that the young man, heard that, when he heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. It's a sad thing, man, that, that he, would, he would turn away an offer of salvation because of his possessions, because of the things that he has. And we can be so caught up in things sometimes. I know before I was a Christian, I was so caught up in the things that I thought I had and the things that, that, I, that I thought I, I knew and that that, that was going to please me, that was going to bring me satisfaction. But B triple G, the Lord pulled me out of that. Oh, I'm sorry. A lot of you like B triple G. Sorry, it's a, a little acronym we use. It's by God's grace and goodness. So B triple G. By God's grace and goodness, he pulled me out of that. Sorry, send it to your friends. Put in a text message. It's cute. Yeah, but B triple G. I mean, I was I was saved from that. I was pulled out of that. And Jesus extends this offer to this man as well. He says, "Sell everything that you have. Get rid of that." Because why? Because Jesus recognizes that this man hasn't kept the commandments. Jesus was questioned one time by the Pharisees. He says, "What is the greatest law? Or what is the greatest commandment of the law?" And what does Jesus say? He says. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. Jesus says, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. This man's heart wasn't fully loving God. He was keeping these outward appearances that he was, he was doing things. He was obeying the commandments as to men, but he had missed the, the very greatest commandment. He wasn't dedicated to God. His life wasn't dedicated to God. He wasn't completely dedicated to God. He didn't know the word of God because he would have known that, that that was the primary commandment. His heart was in a completely different place, and Jesus recognized that. And the man, he walked away sorrowful because he wasn't willing to give up his possessions. And I think we all come to a place in our life where we have to recognize we either serve God completely and wholly and fully and cast everything aside, or we continue to live and allow those things to, to try to please us or to provide a, a temporary satisfaction for us. But I, I remember that uh, Nick Vujicic, I don't know if you guys remember him, the guy with no arms, no legs, he said one time, as he looking directly into the camera at the crowd, he said, if you put your happiness in temporary things, your happiness will only be temporary. But you put your happiness in eternal things, and your happiness will be eternal. If we put our happiness, we put our trust, we give our heart to the Lord, we can know that it's good for eternity. And this is, the, this is what this man denied. So he turned away from. In verse 23, Jesus then said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. 
And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Jesus says that it is hard for a rich man to get into heaven. Why? Because he's so attached to his possessions. Possessions can do that to you. They can make you feel like you're secure. It's hard to, 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 to get away from that. But it's not impossible. It's not impossible. Why? Because God can, God can free a person from that, from the, the strings that they've attached themselves to these, these possessions or to these things in this life, a relationship, a lifestyle, a job, a, a, a person that you, that you know that you don't want to give up. With men, is it impossible but with God, it's possible. God can, can allow that to not be something that holds you. That he can free you from that bondage. He can heal you from that. I mean, he says it here in, in his word. And the word of God is powerful. It is clear. He says, with men, it is, it is impossible. With God, it is possible. And then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what should we have? And Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will, will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And we see here that Peter, I mean, Peter, you, you know, he's known for just bumping at the gums and just shouting out things. And here he just shouts out. He says, well, I mean, we've given up everything. We've followed you. we followed you. So what are we going to get? And I mean... In a sense, it's a good question because, I mean, in a sense, I want to know, too. Like, what do we get? Well, what do we get? We get eternal life. But on top of that, the Lord says that he's going to give them a special privilege, that they'll sit on 12 thrones. And this is something that he gave to the disciples because this is who he established the church with. He established the church with the disciples. But there's also a reward for us in heaven. Based on the things that we do here on this earth, there will be treasure stored up for us in heaven. Don't allow your treasure to be here on this earth where moth and rust will destroy, or where thieves, thieves can break in and steal. But store your treasure up in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, or where thieves can break in and steal. Why? Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Our heart needs to be with the Lord. So in verse 29, in verse 29 he says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or mother or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. So what do we get? We get a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. A hundredfold of what? Of everything that you've given up. Now, does Jesus mean this literally? I mean, are you going to get a hundred times everything that you've given up? Chances are maybe not. I mean, if you give up twenty dollars, you're not going to multiply by hundred and you know get, be balling. It's not going to happen. But what this verse is saying is that the, there's things that we need to give up. There's things that that we put value in. You know, for for me, this is one of the first promises, and I hope you would highlight or underline this passage because for me, this is one of the first promises that the Lord spoke to me. I mean, I had friends. I thought I had everything. I told you, I thought I had everything. I had a car. I had a house. I had friends. I had, you know, relationships. But when the Lord called me out of that, he called me to forsake all of it, to leave it all behind. He gave me the same offer he gave this rich young ruler. The only difference is, by his grace, B triple G, I accepted. And I had to give up some things. I had to give up some friends. I had to give up some relationships. I had to give up the house. 
And it was, for me, it really wasn't that hard because I knew that my God loved me so much that he pulled me out of a, 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 a path that was leading to destruction, eternity and separation from him, eternity in hell, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. My God saved me from that. So to give up a, a relationship, to give up my friends, it wasn't a big deal for me. But for some of you, maybe it is still a, it is an, an issue. And I'm not going to lie, I mean, there's still some attachments that I still have that I would like to have this relationship with a person. I would like to see my friends on a daily basis, but I recognize that I can't. What fellowship has light with darkness? And do not be conceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Maybe there's some friends you got to cut off. Maybe there's some people that you got to separate yourself from. I had to because I knew the things that they were doing, and it wasn't glorifying the Lord. My, just, I felt just disgusted being in, in those situations. Like just the spirit that God had put in me was not identifying with that. And I I didn't want to be a part of it. So I separated myself from that. I had to give it up. But praise be to God because he answered this promise. He he showed me this promise to to bring to a reality in my life. He's blessed me with the friends that I've given up. He's blessed me with tons of friends. I mean, like like godly people, though. Godly people that that care about me, that care about my, my sanctification, my salvation, that continue to pray for me, send me text messages throughout the day trying to encourage me. And I pray that the Lord has shown you that same exact love, that same exact fulfillment of this promise, that he would give you a hundredfold, that the friends that you give up, that he would bring godly people around you. And maybe you're here tonight and you're like, man, I don't have a whole lot of Christian friends. I got to hang out with my other friends. Be obedient to what God says. Forsake all that. See what he does. See if he brings some friends to you. Maybe it's that you got to step out and say hi to some people. And that's the fulfillment of the promise. And God works in practical ways. But he says, if you, if, you forgive, if you give up these things for my name's sake and the sake of the kingdom, he will reward you a hundredfold. And in the, in the end, in the age to come, you get eternal life. You get life in heaven. Heaven, where there's no crying, there's no pain, there's no sickness. There's none of that. It's just joy. You get to see the face of, of, of God. You get to be in the presence of God. We can't fully even understand what that would be like. We get that great gift. Why? Because 2,000 years ago, there was a man who came and lived a sinless life and was beaten, was battered, and was just bloody. Why? Because he sinned? No, because we sinned. And because he wanted us to have a relationship with him. And when he wanted us to have a relationship with him, he, he took our sin and nailed it to the cross. He, he died for our sin so that we could have a relationship with him. Accept that gift. Accept that wholly and fully. If you are a Christian, maybe you've, you know, been recognizing that you have been dabbling in some things that, that aren't good. Maybe you've been committing a sort of, of spiritual adultery. God has grace for you. Come back to him. Follow him. Follow his word. The word of God is powerful. It will change your life. He will give you strength. He will heal you. He will bless you. He will be with you. The Bible says he will never leave you or forsake you. The work that he began in your life, he will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, until he returns. God's word is powerful. He wants to do great things in our lives. We just need to be submitted unto him. Look at all the things that he's given us. How, why can't we give up the things that are holding us back and fully follow him? He wants to bless you. Now, the word of God is powerful, and we recognize that. And the manuscripts are completely inspired by God. But this chapter division right here at the end of, the, the, the end of this chapter, I don't really understand. I mean, the, the way they labeled the verses and the way they, they went through the chapters, I mean, it's not necessarily inspired. Because um, this verse here, it says in verse 30, But many who are first will be last, and the last shall be first. 
And it goes and it kind of ties into the next chapter, talking about how the gospel, it came to the, to the Jew first and then to the, to the Gentile. So many who were first will be last, and the last shall be first. But the Gentiles would receive the gospel message. The, the Gentiles would have the promise of salvation and, and fellowship with God. And it goes on in verse 20 and starts to talk about that. So I pray that you would read that tomorrow. And that you would continue to read the word every single day. That you would allow yourself to be built up spiritually. That you would take the name of Christ. And that you would not take it in vain. That you would not commit adultery. But that you would walk with, the, with our Lord and Savior every single day of your life. That you, would be, that you would be completely believing in him. That you would be completely dependent upon him. And that you would li- seek to live a life that is holy, that is innocent by the power of his spirit as a child, and receive the kingdom of God, that you receive the promises that he has for you in scripture, and that you would continue on in this walk with God, that you would continue on in this life, and that you would seek to glorify him in everything that you do, from when you wake up in the morning to when you go to bed at night, that everything that you do, that you say, everything that you're a part of, would glorify God, and that that would always be at the forefront of your mind. I like what Martin Luther said concerning things that we, we possess. Martin Luther said, I have held many things in my hands, and I have lost them all. But whatever I place in God's hands, that I still possess. We can trust our God. He's a faithful God. He's a true God. His word is powerful. His word is true. And I pray that tonight, his word would have spoken to you. Man, I love you guys. I thank you for just allowing me to be here with you. I pray that you would just reverence our God and that you would seek to live after him with a whole heart. Forsake those things and cling to him all the days of your life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you. We thank you for your grace, for your mercy. So many times, Lord, we've walked contrary to the name that we've accepted. We've been disobedient. But Father, I pray that tonight, Tonight, we would repent, that we would turn away from our sins, even that small sin. Lord, I pray that you would continue to reveal sin in our lives, that we would be more like your son, Christ Jesus. Lord, and that for the rest of our lives, we would live lives that would glorify you, that we would be faithful to the name that we've accepted. Lord, I pray for any here who do need a healing touch from you, Lord. I pray that they would call out to you and that you would touch them, Lord whatever the situation may be, that you would just be with them, Lord, that you would comfort them. Lord, I pray that that you would help us to just to deny the things of this world, that we wouldn't be concerned with the things of this world, no matter what it may be, that we'd be solely focused on you, that our heart would be fully and completely given to you. Whatever it is that may be distracting us, Lord, whether it's a job or or schoolwork or, or relationship or just the idea of a relationship, Lord, we just, we just lay it at your feet. Help us, help us to, to not see that anymore, but to see you and just to trust in your word and that it's powerful and that it's true and that you will add all these things to us, but that we should seek your kingdom first. Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength, that you would help us to endure. God, we thank you. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.